It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It's been a busy year in space. Last week, a NASA probe called OSIRIS-REx grabbed a sample of rock from an asteroid near Earth. That sample could help scientists unravel the origins of the solar system the Earth, and possibly even life itself. This week, astronomers confirmed that the Moon probably has more water in more places than they'd previously realised. And who can forget the discovery of phosphine gas on Venus a few weeks ago, and with it, a hint that there might be life on that planet. Well, possibly. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Alok Jha, the Economist Science Correspondent. On today's show, we're exploring life, the universe and everything. How did life begin on planet Earth? This is contentious and has been forever. Different sets of chemical reactions could happen depending on what gases were present. If we ever found extraterrestrial life, what might it look like? On Earth, we find examples of animals that seem to be adapted for other planets. And what about the end? The end of the universe, that is. There is a bit of a thrill, a little hint of existential terror when you think of this stuff. The past few weeks have seen a lot of activity far, far away from planet Earth. It's great to be uh, making this announcement today. Today we are On Monday, NASA announced that its scientists had found water molecules on the sunlit portions of the moon. Very useful if you want to build a moon base. In addition, there seems to be more places on the moon than previously thought where there are shadows and depressions, places that might be able to protect and accumulate water ice. Understanding the source of water and its retention helps piece together the broader history and role water plays in the inner solar system and may have implications for human exploration. On our daily current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, Oliver Morton, The Economist's briefings editor, explained the significance of these findings. Water's really useful when you're on the moon because you can make oxygen out of it, which you can breathe. And by making oxygen, you also make hydrogen. And then if you recombine the oxygen and hydrogen, you have rocket fuel. And also, of course, it's nice to be able to have a wash now and then. So having water already on the moon is a very useful thing in principle for putting a base on the moon. On 20th of October, a NASA spacecraft called OSIRIS-REx fist-bumped Bennu, an asteroid that has been orbiting since December 2018. Right as we make contact with the surface, our nitrogen gas bottle fires to collect that sample. This liberated small pieces of rock, some of which entered the collection chamber on the sampling arm of the probe. Bennu's surface is rich in organic 
carbon-based compounds. The asteroid has not been exposed to high temperatures since it was formed billions of years ago, and therefore it's probably not changed much in that time. Scientists see Bennu as an invaluable window into the earliest years of our solar system. Knowing that there was a lot of organic molecules around so long ago is particularly interesting to scientists who are trying to work out how life on Earth made its start. We know the Earth is four and a half billion years old. That's been established since the 1950s. Michael Marshall is the author of The Genesis Quest, an exploration of the origins of life on Earth. And we know that the oldest confirmed fossils of life are three and a half billion years ago. And those are fossils of single-celled microorganisms that are found in a place called Pilbara in Western Australia. So that gives us a one billion year time window. And what do we know about the conditions on the Earth at that time? The first few million years of the Earth's existence, and indeed the first half billion years, seems to have been pretty rough in that we know that there were a lot of large meteorites coming in. And that seems to have carried on to a lesser extent, even until about three billion years ago, so a time when we know life was established. We also know that there wasn't any oxygen in the air because oxygen is only produced by photosynthesis and photosynthesis wouldn't evolve for some time. But the exact makeup of the atmosphere and things like how much land there was is all somewhat up for debate even now. And do we know what that first life form looked like? I'm not sure we can say exactly what the first life form looked like, but if we take all the living organisms that are around today, we know that they're all based on cells, which are these microscopic bags or spheres that contain incredibly complicated chemical reactions and sort of long, massive biological molecules like DNA. The one sort of contentious thing is viruses, which aren't made of cells, which are even simpler, but viruses can't reproduce themselves without a cell. And so we have to sort of imagine that whatever the very first living organism was, it must have somehow given rise to some sort of very simple cell. And that's kind of the crossing of the Rubicon. If you've got something that is a simple version of a cell, then that is unambiguously alive. There are several competing theories over how life began on Earth. One is the idea that the earliest versions of life began evolving in a sort of soup of chemicals. When the idea of the primordial soup really took over, it kind of starts in the 1920s with a Russian researcher called Alexander Oparin, and he imagined that life began really in the oceans. So he was suggesting that when the Earth was newly formed, it was essentially a kind of planet-sized chemical factory, and all these different carbon-based chemicals would have formed and become more and more complex and would have dissolved in the ocean once the oceans formed. And it was his notion then that as these things accumulated, the oceans became sort of thicker and more concentrated, and you would eventually get these little globules of fatty substances, and those would have been the precursors to the first cells. The first sort of really famous experiment about the origin of life was done in the early 1950s by an American graduate student named Stanley Miller, and he essentially kind of simulated the scenario that Apparent was imagining. So he had this glass apparatus and there was one flask which contained water and that was meant to simulate the ocean. And there was a second flask which contained some very simple gases and that simulated the air. And they were linked and he heated the ocean and he had a little electrode stuck into the air bit which was to simulate lightning strikes. And he just left it alone for a bit. I mean, literally for a few days. And he found that 
a couple of very simple amino acids formed. And amino acids are really crucial to life because they're the building blocks of larger molecules called proteins. And proteins are central to almost everything that's happening inside living cells. So that was a really dramatic finding. By the early 80s, when Carl Sagan made the Cosmos TV series, he was trotting out the primordial soup idea really with a great deal of confidence. But even by then, there were really very obvious problems. The first one was that really the oceans are big. And so there's an open question as to how concentrated any of these chemicals would really get. You might have this disastrous situation where, you know, a molecule of DNA or something like it forms in the equivalent of the Pacific Ocean and the first protein forms in the Atlantic and never the twain shall meet and you won't really get anywhere. So there was this emerging idea that maybe you needed something a bit smaller, a bit more contained than the ocean. And there were also emerging problems to do with the makeup of the atmosphere at that time. And therefore, it was a beautiful experiment and very dramatic, but it may not necessarily reflect what actually happened. Since then, we've had further ideas about where the conditions might be right for life to start. For example, at the bottom of the oceans near hydrothermal vents. Is that something that's a rival idea or does it complement the warm little pond? There is definitely a lot of debate between the people who would argue that the vents are the most likely place because they provide a source of chemical energy that would have fueled the first life. So hydrothermal vents, they're essentially the deep sea version of a hot spring. So if you imagine the seabed, underneath the seabed, you know, the rocks are hot and water kind of bubbles up through those rocks and it picks up different chemicals off the minerals and then it sort of bubbles up out of the seabed and rises up into the cool seawater above. And as it does that, the minerals that are in this hot water condense out and so you form these spires and chimneys. And the idea is that the liveliness of the range of chemicals that are going on, and particularly the interplay between the ocean water and the water from underneath, would create chemical energy, which would then give the first living organisms essentially the drive to be able to exist and sustain themselves. Given the right chemicals are around, the right conditions around, is the creation of life something you think is inevitable or is it just a chance thing that is very rare? I am inclined to think that given the right circumstances, it's probably quite likely. And I'm not sure how common those circumstances are necessarily going to be. So often when we talk about the idea that there might be life elsewhere on the universe, we talk about what's called the habitability zone, that radius around a star where it's possible for liquid water to exist. But it may be that actually the conditions are a little bit narrower than that. So, for example, we don't know how big or small a planet can be and still have the right conditions for life. So it may be that things like plate tectonics and volcanic activity are really important, in which case some worlds might be unviable, even if they're right in the habitability zone. There's also a question of how much sunlight is needed because many of the chemical reactions for making things like RNA and so forth, they tend to use quite a lot of ultraviolet radiation. So if you're on the outer edge of the habitability zone, you might still have liquid water, but you might not have enough of this UV and the light from your star to necessarily drive this along. A few years ago, there was a study that looked at all the known exoplanets. I think there was only one which was both a reasonable size, reasonably close to Earth size, and it was in the habitability zone, and it had enough UV, and it was something like 40,000 light years away. So it may be that although life is likely, given the right circumstances, it may well be that the nearest worlds that had those circumstances is actually an intimidatingly large distance away. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you. 
if scientists did find life elsewhere in the universe, what might it look like? That question has been pondered by science fiction for decades. But what about real scientists? What do they have to say? For me, particularly, it's interesting because the kind of organisms that have been postulated, little microbes living in droplets of concentrated sulfuric acid, are going to have such a different biochemistry from ours that we kind of need to abandon all of the mechanistic explanations of what life is and think about something very, very different. Eric Kirschenbaum is a zoologist at the University of Cambridge. In his latest book, The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy, he's been exploring what alien life might look like based on what we know about life here on Earth. And one of the nice things about the way that I look at the possibilities of alien life is it's independent of the underlying biochemistry. Even for an organism that lives in concentrated sulfuric acid, it won't have DNA, but the same principles of natural selection are going to apply to it. Searching for life beyond Earth has usually meant looking for biosignatures such as oxygen, methane or water. But Dr. Kirschenbaum thinks scientists might need to cast their nets wider. We need to expand the searches for biochemistries, but really what we need is to diversify our thinking and to be open-minded about possible biochemistries that are not like ours. One of the things about astrobiology or the research of what life might be like on other planets at the moment is that many scientists do this in the lab where you can do experiments and you can see what kinds of chemicals work and what kinds of chemicals might not work for life. But when you do that, you're always limited to the kinds of chemicals that we know about and the kinds of chemicals that work well here. When you consider that other planets may have very different environments like that on Venus, those approaches may not be the best ones, but still, even under different conditions and with different biochemistries, some principles of biology are still going to apply. And in particular, the principle that complex life can really only become more complex through natural selection. And that doesn't matter what the underlying mechanism is. Why should we think that this is universal around the entire cosmos? It's really the only mechanism that we know of for a long-term increase in complexity of a system. And here's the thing that when you think about why animals are the way they are, or why life is the way it is, we often think about what kinds of features, what kinds of traits would be good for an animal, long teeth or fast legs or something like that. But that's not good enough. You need to think about how those animals got there. How did they get those long legs? No creatures anywhere in the universe popped into existence, well adapted to their environment. They must have come from simpler organisms. And it's that process of going from simple to complex, which is the one that's driven by natural selection. If aliens do exist, they might be social beings. If they are, how might they communicate? I think any inhabited planet, and there must be billions of inhabited planets in the universe, any inhabited planet is going to have a diversity of life on it, some more complex, some less complex. To think about how aliens communicate, we've got to think about how the simpler animals on those planets communicated. That communication will have evolved from an earlier, simpler stage. Now, if you have a planet like Mars, for instance, where the atmosphere is very thin, sound doesn't seem to be a particularly good medium for communicating. If you have an underground ocean, like on Europa or Enceladus, 
light might not be a brilliant way of communicating. But interestingly, sound and light both have some very important physical properties, which makes them, in general, very, very good ways to communicate. And I think on most planets, we will find that one or the other, sound or vision, are going to be the dominant means of communication. But what might these things actually look like? Symmetry is incredibly useful if you are moving at the interface between a solid and a fluid. Essentially, if you're on the ground, symmetry is going to evolve because it's far, far more efficient way to get around than just slithering in any old direction. And of course, that's what we're used to on Earth. And because life evolved essentially on the sea floor, even those animals that now live completely in the liquid sea, in water, there are some animals, of course, that are not symmetrical, very few on Earth. And really, there are some conditions under which you could imagine that that lack of symmetry could actually be advantageous. What's really interesting is that those animals exist at all on Earth. So on Earth, we find, rarely, but we find them, examples of animals that seem to be adapted for other planets. For example, what what kinds of things are we talking about? There are corals and, and jellyfish being the obvious examples. And there are, in fact, a few animals on Earth that evolved to be symmetrical and then abandoned that symmetry to become circular or radially symmetric. And these are the starfish and, and their relatives. And by looking at why that happened, why these animals found that it worked better for them not to be symmetrical, is going to be a very revealing thought experiment on what non-symmetric animals might look like on other planets. Essentially, starfish and sea urchins could be a pretty good example of what they would look like. So they'd probably communicate through sound or vision, and they might look like starfish or sea urchins. Astrobiologists so far have been looking for biosignatures with earthly biochemistry. That's why the possible discovery of a gas called phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus a few weeks ago was so exciting. One of astronomers have announced they found what could be evidence of life elsewhere. Scientists discovering on possible signs of life on Venus. And Living organisms may be floating around in the clouds of planet Venus. Dr. Kirschenbaum also says we need to look further, perhaps not just biosignatures, but technosignatures. It's an interesting idea that we're, of course, looking for technosignatures like we understand. We have our technology, radio technology, and so we're looking for radio signals from other planets. Now, there's a lot of logic to that because there are not very many signals that can cross space effectively, and radio signals are particularly good at that. People now are starting to look for other kinds of technological signatures like laser bursts and so on. I'm kind of intrigued by the thought experiment that you can do if you consider animals on Earth such as electric fish, which sense their environment using electric fields and also communicate using electric fields. Well, I know electric fish on Earth has evolved to have a complex communication like a language, but I wonder if an alien species originally evolved to sense the environment and communicate using electric fields. We're really constrained by the huge distances. We're restricted to signals that are traveling at the speed of light, radio and laser signals. But don't forget, of course, that our radio broadcasts are 
currently about 100 light years away from Earth. We've been using radio for 100 years approximately. So any civilization within 100 light years of us that was looking at our planet would be aware that we have a technological civilization here. So it's far from being an impossible task to find radio indications of other civilizations. It's just not been very successful yet, unfortunately. Broadcasting to planet Earth and beyond, Eric Kirschenbaum, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today on Babbage, we've been looking at the origins of life. But what about the other end of time? My name is Katie Mack. I'm an astrophysicist, and I've written a book about the end of the universe and various ways that might happen and what they would look like if we were there to see it. All of that sounds quite apocalyptic. In her new book, The End of Everything, Katie describes several scenarios for how the universe might end. I asked her first what the heat death of the universe was. The heat death is the one that we physicists generally think of as the most likely, the one we seem to be headed toward. This is where the expansion of the universe continues forever. So we know right now the universe is expanding, distant galaxies are getting farther apart, and we think that that expansion will continue indefinitely into the future. And what that means is that everything will get kind of farther apart, more isolated in the cosmos. There will be fewer interactions between galaxies, fewer stars forming, and the stars that we have will burn out. The universe will get darker and emptier, and over time, everything will kind of just decay away, and you'll be left with this kind of cold, dark, empty universe. And it's called the heat death because all that's left in the universe at that point is kind of a trace amount of the waste heat of everything that happened in the cosmos. So it is kind of a very bleak future. Yeah, and everything just kind of disappears. You can't tell which way time goes anymore. Yeah. What's the time scale for something like this? I mean, I'm hoping it's not going to happen next week, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, the time scale for this is so far into the future. It kind of depends on how you mark time at that point. You know, we're talking about 10 to the something, 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 trillions and trillions and trillions of years from now. Well, okay. So that feels inevitable in a way, but if you go through some much more interesting and kind of, well, I don't want to say frightening because humans won't be around. There's nothing to frighten, but uh, conceptually frightening things. The big crunch. I'd never really heard of this one. Tell us what that is. The big crunch is what happens if the universe does not continue expanding forever. So we know that in the beginning, the universe was very hot and dense and compact. And then the Big Bang set off this expansion and everything was kind of spreading out. And there's a sort of competition between that expansion and the gravity of everything in the universe, where if there's enough stuff in the universe or if the expansion wasn't powerful enough, then all that expansion will stop and be reversed as, as all of the galaxies and everything are pulling back together trying to get everything to recollapse. Everything would, would start to 
to coalesce and the empty space out in the cosmos would get hotter and hotter as all the radiation from all of the stars and everything gets more and more compressed and it would just kind of incinerate everything in the cosmos. But fortunately, that's one that we think is very unlikely to happen. So as lonely and cold as the heat death of the universe is, this is the direct opposite. It's this kind of like a flaming inferno of, of hell, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's not a pleasant prospect. Well, one thing I noticed in the description of the Big Crunch was about at some point in the future, if the Big Crunch were to happen, that stars would burn from the outside in. Yeah. Uh, you know, which, which boggles my mind because for anyone who knows about stars, the hottest bit of a star is the center where the fusion reactions are taking place and, and radiating outwards and, and so on. How on earth do you burn a star from the outside in? Well, the thing about the big crunch is that when you're compressing everything into smaller space, you're not just pushing the matter together. You're also compressing all the radiation. Everything that's ever shown light into the universe, that light has been traveling through the cosmos. And if you make the cosmos smaller, then that light's going to be compressed into a smaller and smaller space. And so just empty space would be so hot, it would be so full of, of radiation that it would ignite the surfaces of stars. Do you find it depressing to look at these things? Do your colleagues think, oh God, why are you thinking about this stuff? Or, or do, you, do you find some <laughs> other sort of goal to it? I don't find it depressing. There is a, a bit of a thrill, you know, a sort of a little hint of existential terror when you think of this stuff. But the timescales are so long and the, the processes are so unimaginably vast that it's, I don't know, there's a heady feeling of, of awe. When we take the time to consider our place in the cosmos and, and our ultimate purpose, there is something wonderful and, and luxurious about being able to think in those terms. Why is there so much uncertainty about the end of time? There are a lot of big uncertainties in cosmology that we're still trying to figure out and that make a huge difference to how the universe will evolve in the future. So the two biggest mysteries in cosmology right now are dark matter and dark energy. We're pretty sure they're out there. They act in very different ways. Dark matter is a kind of invisible matter that holds galaxies together. Dark energy is something that makes the universe expand faster. For both of them, we have a pretty good description of what they do. And for both of them, we have no idea what they are. <laughs> and they're most of the universe. You know, the regular matter, the stuff that we're made of, is about 5% of what the universe is. The rest, 95%, is this dark matter and dark energy. If we did understand the origin of our cosmos, then that would give us a clue to the fundamental physical properties that will determine the overall shape and evolution and fate of the cosmos as well. And so we're still trying to figure that out. So there are some big mysteries and we're working on these things. So what kinds of experiments can one do to decide which of the various scenarios you've outlined is the one that the universe will end up with? We're doing a bunch of experiments trying to figure out what dark matter is. That involves detection experiments. It involves things with the Large Hadron Collider where we're trying to actually build dark matter, like make it out of these particle collisions. Then also we're trying to understand dark energy by trying to figure out how it's affected the evolution of the cosmos up to now, how that expansion may or may not have been sort of steady or, or, or changing in some way that would, that would give us a clue to what dark energy is made of. And then on the other end, we're trying to understand the very early universe. We have a number of observations trying to examine the, the cosmic microwave background light, which is this sort of afterglow of the Big Bang, and, and look for signatures in that light. And we also have a lot of really exciting new techniques like gravitational wave astronomy, where we're actually measuring the vibration of space 
as black holes are colliding in other galaxies. And that's telling us about gravity and it's telling us about the layout of the cosmos as well. So what we're really trying to do is get a whole coherent picture of how physics works in this cosmos. And that will allow us to fill in the story of the end. Katie Mack, thank you very much for speaking to us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Babbage. And thanks again to our guests, Michael Marshall, Eric Kirschenbaum, and Katie Mack. To let us know what you think alien life might look like, email us. The address is radio at economist.com. I'm Alok Chow, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.